Um, I think there is no other letter in the New Testament that gets you more excited about being a Christian to understand it properly. So tonight I want to do two things. First of all, I just want to introduce Ephesians so that as it goes on, you'll understand a bit more of what's, what's actually going on and what he's trying to, to shoot at. And also I want to look at these first 14 verses we looked at because there's so much in them. Quite honestly, we could spend until midnight talking about it. And don't worry, I'm not tempted. But anyhow, this is Ephesus. Let's just uh, have a look at it. Come on, you can do it. No, that's it, yeah. And uh, it was one of the big cities of the ancient world. In fact, in the Roman Empire, it was probably the second city. Rome was the really big one. One million inhabitants, which you might think nowadays, nah, big deal. But in those days, well, with the, the, the limited sanitation and lighting and food supply and everything that they had, to get a million people into one place was really quite something. And Ephesus, well, it wasn't quite so big. It was about 200 to 250,000 people. That is still a lot. It's about the size of Luton or Reading nowadays, or if you prefer something closer at hand, twice the size of Exeter. If you doubled Exeter, there's Ephesus in one. And it really was a, a wealthy city, as you can probably see there. And we know all sorts of things about it. It just shows how important it was. For one thing, second largest city of the empire, we said that, it was a busy port. It was at the end of the Silk Road from Asia, down which all of the uh, donkeys and camels traveled. It carried all the precious spices and silks and things like that from the east. And there they'd be put on ships and taken off to Rome. So it was an incredibly wealthy place. It was the metropolis of Asia, which means that wherever you were in the Roman province of Asia, all of the milestones were marked in terms of the distance from Asia, uh, from uh, Ephesus. You're 40 miles from Ephesus. You're five miles from Ephesus. But Ephesus was a point that everything went to. Some people sometimes say about France that all roads in, in France lead to Paris. It's the one most important place. In the, and Ephesus had that kind of uh, situation in ancient Turkey. It was the metropolis. And uh, it was a chief city of the va uh, a valley in which there were all sorts of other cities as well. There were lots of little places, as we'll see, that fed into Ephesus. Um, it was a center of medicine. There was a great academy of medicine, which was incredibly far ahead and advanced for its day. And uh, great uh, doctors like Rufus and Soranus in the ancient world, they came from Ephesus. They trained there, and they centered their knowledge there. It was where the common games of Asia happened every four years. We now have the Olympics every four years. Well, the games of Asia were the sort of forerunner to that, and it always happened in Ephesus. It was uh, the obvious place to hold it because nowhere else to have it. It was the biggest place around. Great architecture. Even if you go there today, uh, you, you see all the ruins. Some of them are just absolutely stylish. I'll show you some pictures in a minute. There's a, a temple of Diana that had been there since the Bronze Age. I'll show you one in a moment too. And, but it wasn't just Diana that was worshipped there, or Artemis, as she was known in Greek. There were cult centers for over 26 other gods and goddesses too. If you look carefully at that picture I just showed you of the town, you'd see all sorts of temples all over the place. A very religious kind of place and uh, very uh, sophisticated and technological too. It was also a center of magical practices. When Paul was there and lots of people started becoming uh, Christians, they took all their spells and their books and their charms and things like that and burned them. And uh, they, somebody calculated the price of what was burning there and it was a massive, massive sum of money running to thousands and thousands of pounds because religion and magic was big business in Ephesus. It was also a place of prostitution and casual sex. Uh, the morals were not too, too amazing there and uh, lots of people went to Ephesus to do things that you might do in Las Vegas nowadays. And uh, um, 
It had a Jewish community that was exempt from military service. What that meant was that Jews who went there, although they were citizens of the empire, didn't have to serve time in the army. They were given that freedom. So it became the center for lots of Jewish merchants as well. And trade and commerce boomed all over the place. Massive place. I've been here. This is the auditorium in Ephesus. 25,000 seater, we believe, where... Uh, Aristarchus, whom you, you, you met over the last Sunday mornings, he was in with Paul in that boat, uh, was dragged in front of a crowd of 25,000 people who were all chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And that was not one of the world's greatest places to be a Christian at that moment in time, you know, with these 50,000 eyes staring at you balefully and the chants going on. And when that auditorium is full, it's, it's such a brilliant acoustic uh, place that uh, I've been up in the top row of the auditorium, right up the top there, and listened to a bunch of tourists who were right down at the bottom, a bit like those people are down on the sunnies there. And uh, you could hear every single word because the acoustics are just so good. So it must have been a quite, quite a racket when 25,000 people were shouting at old Aristarchus and Gaius. Uh, there are great buildings, as I say, and this is the, the street in which Paul probably worked. He probably had his shop here as a sail maker and tent maker. And... Um, this is the main road that leads down to the harbour. Some of the houses are pretty amazing. These are some of the terraced houses in Ephesus. This is the public loo, for gents anyway. And, uh, okay, you didn't get a cubicle or anything like that, but it was pretty sophisticated for those days. And uh, uh, there are all sorts of things as well. This is a flagstone, which is an advertisement on the street leading into the town centre. And the foot is there, presumably to show which way you have to go to get to the girl on the right. I'm not sure if you can see her. She's a bit faded, faded now. And this seems to have been an advert for the local brothel, which we have also discovered. We know where it is. And it did very, very good trade indeed. So it was a, a kind of difficult place to be a Christian in lots of ways because you had all this pagan worship, all this magic, all this sophisticated stuff, money and, and materialism all over the place, and also this uh, very seamy sort of sexual side to it as well. But the big um, place that drew people to Ephesus was this one. This is the Temple of Diana or Artemis, and it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. You know, there are seven wonders of the world. Well, this is one of them. Um, it's 115 meters long. It's 55 meters wide, which is pretty big for a temple. It took 120 years to build. So if you start today, it was probably going to be your grandson that finished it. It had 127 columns, as you can see, those big pillars all the way around it, with a diameter of 1.2 meters each. And they were all 19 meters tall. And it was the first Greek temple that was ever built of marble. Cost an absolute bomb. And it was an, uh, one of the great places of the ancient world. And writer Antipater of Sidon said, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots on the top of the wall, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Ausulus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy, and I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. And um, still there today, that's, that's the goddess Artemis, just if you're wondering. Um, she was the real kind of center of everything as far as Ephesus was concerned. A bit different nowadays, they say. After I'd been in the auditorium, our tour guide said, get back on the bus first. We're going to go down and see what's left of the temple of Artemis. And basically, remember 217 columns? Well, that's it. <laughs> One column with a family of storks uh, living on the top of it. That's all that's left today. And so that wonder of the world has disappeared. But it was there. It was an oppressive place for the Christians to live because it, 
everybody just seemed so confident that Ephesus was the way to live. They knew all about it. This is what life was all about. They were the wealthiest. They were the, 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 the best off. They were the, they were the chosen ones, if you like, in their society, in their culture. And to be a Christian said, well, I, I actually believe something different. That was not an easy thing to do. So um, what did Paul actually do in Ephesus? That's the next thing we've got to get straight. And uh, he was in and out of Ephesus quite a bit in the course of his life. For one thing, he visited briefly at the end of his second missionary journey. You remember how he did these three missionary journeys, or possibly four, right around the place. And at the end of his second journey, he went there on his way back to Antioch, where he was based. And people in Ephesus said, you've got to stay here. You've got to tell us more about this. Um, no, no, I can't. Not right now. I've got to go home, but I will come back. And so, um, later on, another preacher called Apollos got to Ephesus, and he made quite an impact. And when he had moved on, Paul kept his promise. He came back from Turkey to Ephesus and stayed there for three years. Now, we don't know quite uh, everything that happened to him there, but we can piece a lot of it together. He, when he came, he met the disciples of John the Baptist, who didn't know about Jesus. He knew about John the Baptist, but not about Jesus. And they became Christians, and that was great. And he started teaching in the synagogue, and people became Christians there. And then the synagogue started thinking, this is not good. Uh, all these people are going to be Christians now. They're not going to be Jewish any longer. They threw him out. And so he started teaching in the hall of Uranus, who was a, a pagan philosopher, and rented out the hall to Paul. So Paul was lecturing for hours every day. And people would come into that hall and, and hear and argue and discuss with him. And... Uh, uh, people became Christians. Also, there were some miracles that happened around him. And some of them, as I said, some automatic, because sometimes he didn't know they were happening. Uh, and, and people would just take his handkerchief or something like that. And suddenly they'd be healed of whatever it was. And weird things started to happen. And as it was God was saying to all the people in Ephesus, you think you've got it sorted? Look at this guy. I have put my power in him in a way that Artemis could never dream about. And so it went on. Uh, there were the sons of Sceva, who were sort of artificial magicians, and they tried to copy Paul, and uh, they came up against the demonic spirit. And you can read it all in the book of Acts. Three letters were written to Corinth, where he'd found their church earlier on. He went on a trip across to Corinth. There were various other things he did. And perhaps he was stuck in prison in Ephesus as well. It certainly sounds like it from one of those letters to Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about the experiences he had there. And it sounds, although we don't know anything about this, as if he really was put through, not just imprisonment, but torture and the threat of death as well. And Ephesus was a horrible experience for him. All of these good things happened, but it's the powers of darkness really came back at him as well. And we think that perhaps this was when he wrote the letter to Ephesus. You may think, well, that's a bit daft, isn't it? Why would you write a letter to Ephesus if you were there already? <laughs> Well, I think the answer is because this letter wasn't really just to the church in Ephesus. It was to the whole area round about. You'll notice that it starts, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus. But lots of good manuscripts don't have those words in Ephesus. Right? To the saints who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's all it says. And it would appear because there are no greetings at the end. You know, at the end of Paul's letters, he usually says, Oh, greet so-and-so because I remember her from way back. And so-and-so was a worker with me. And say hello to him for me. And so the normally there's a whole list of names that he wants to be remembered to. Nothing like that at the end of Ephesus at all. And so we strongly suspect this was a letter that was supposed to go around lots of churches. And perhaps because Paul, having been in trouble, having been in prison, just wanted to emphasize to everybody around there, just how valuable this whole Christian thing was. Because 
They might have heard stories about, oh, Paul's being tortured and Paul is not looking himself to sleep and Paul is in prison again and all that sort of stuff. And he just wanted them to get the point that, listen, what you and I have got is incredibly precious. I'm not about to give it up for anything and you shouldn't either. So I think that's what Ephesians is shooting for. But we'll see that in a moment. And uh, then there was a riot with the, all the rest of it. So Paul moved on from Ephesus eventually, but on the way, way back from his third journey, he came past Ephesus on the way home. Didn't stop there, but he called the elders from Ephesians, the, the, the Ephesus, the leaders of the churches, to come down to Miletus, which is a little bit further south, and meet with him there. And it's clear that they had a fantastic relationship with him because they, they realized they might never see him again. And they were all in tears. It, it was an incredible uh, parting thing. But that was not probably the last time he did see them. Because on his fourth journey, it seems that he went back to Crete and then to Ephesus. We don't know this from the Bible, so this is just putting history together as far as we can reconstruct it. But he seems to have gone there, um, uh, and then he left Timothy in charge, and Timothy stayed in, in Ephesus until 97 AD as a kind of bishop of the place. Maybe there was one more visit, and then when he was in prison towards the end of his life, just before he was beheaded, Paul was found by a, uh, a guy called Onesiphorus. Somebody who had been a slave and who could easily get in trouble again because once you've been a slave, they distrusted you in the Roman Empire. But he'd become a wealthy man. He'd gained his freedom. And now he wanted to find Paul. And he went to the prison in Rome and at first they denied all knowledge. Yeah, Paul, no, never heard of him. I don't know where he is. And he just kept on persisting. And eventually he found Paul in prison and he brought him all sorts of stuff and looked after him. And Paul writes about that and says, may God refresh the soul of Onesiphorus because he just wouldn't give up. He wouldn't take no an answer. And guess what? Onesiphorus came from Ephesus. <laughs> and so right through Paul's life, Ephesus comes up again and again and again. And I think one reason he stayed there for three years and made it such an important place in his way was because from Ephesus you could reach all sorts of other places around uh, uh, thereabouts. Uh, Tom Wright, who's written a great biography of Paul, says this. Ephesus being Ephesus, another center both of trade routes and culture, staying there was an excellent way to disseminate the message. People came from far and wide, spent time in the city, and then went on their way. In a culture without print or social media, people simply chat about anything strange or new that they come across on their travels. Oh yes, I've just come back from Ephesus, and you'd never believe it, but there's a strange group there, and they're apparently saying... And so the word spread out from Ephesus to lots of towns around that area. And Ephesus was a very strategic place to work. This is the hinterland of Ephesus. That's what you see when you look out from the city. And all over the place, there are little townships, small places where people had never heard about Jesus before. And so from Ephesus, it spread everywhere. Um, there's Ephesus on the map. And uh, there are all sorts of strategic towns close to it. For instance, there's Troas up at the top there, where Paul often bought the ship from. And uh, Miletus down below, which is where he asked the elders to go to. And uh, there, were, there were Christians there very quickly. But uh, there were other places too. Go 60 miles from Ephesus, up the river, into the valley. You get three towns that are very, very close together. Laodicea, Hierapolis, which was a big, stylish Roman town. And then Colossae down the road, trading town that doesn't exist anymore. If you go to Colossae, all you see is a heap of dirt. And it's time that one was excavated properly. But that's, that's, that's another story. And uh, those three towns were so close together that they had three churches in each of the three towns and a guy called Epaphras, who's kind of full-time worker for all three churches. <laughs> and he'd go between the three places on foot because bicycles weren't invented yet and uh, he would just look after the Christians in those three towns. 
Now, you might wonder why I've made Laodicea a different color from the others there. Well, the answer is because Laodicea is also one of the six churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and, of course, Ephesus. <laughs> so you can see all round Ephesus, you've got these little churches planted in all these important towns where the word can spread from, and so you have Christians all over that province because of uh, what happened in Ephesus. So it was all of those people, it seems to me, that Paul was trying to reach with this letter, uh, Ephesians. It might have started in Ephesus, but it was for everybody in that province of Asia. Now, when you read through the book of Ephesians, you'll find there's one funny phrase that comes up five times. And it's in the heavenly realms, or the Greek word, epuranios. Well, what is that actually talking about? Here are the five references. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is from our reading tonight, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that seems to be saying, you are in the heavenly realms. You know, you're not in heaven. This is not heaven. This is just painting, all right? But uh, you're in heavenly realms. You're walking along the street in a perfectly normal British town. And at the same time, you've got a connection to heaven. It's as if you're in, in heaven as well. You're living two lives simultaneously. What Paul is saying is, you have come into those heavenly realms since you became a Christian. Because most human beings are spiritually dead, as the Bible puts it. They've got no connection to um, heaven in any way whatsoever. It's as if the internet had gone dead, which happens regularly in our house, and uh, you just can't get through. You can't get out. You're stuck within your own little computer, and you can't do anything beyond that point. But when... You're mine <laughs> to heaven. Then you have a connection with heaven all the time, 24-7 online. It's, it's brilliant. That you would never have otherwise. Then he goes on to say, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The heavenly realms are where Jesus is as well. And so you've been brought into that heavenly realm that Jesus has been rocketed back to through the resurrection and the ascension, you are there in him. And third, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, it says in chapter 2, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You might be here painting, having to go to school tomorrow morning after a week off, but you are still in heavenly realms at the same time in Christ Jesus. Mind you, that is not an excuse when you're at school. The teacher says, why are you daydreaming? Why haven't you finished that work yet? You know, I'm not up in heaven. You can't say that. Won't work. I've tried it. Anyway, his intent, this is Ephesians 3, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And begin to realize this spiritual realm, this heavenly realm is serious stuff. There are rulers and authorities and powers that you know nothing about up there. Are they all good? Not necessarily, because that's the last reference. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Spiritual forces of evil. So you've been brought into a world of spiritual reality, even where you live and where you're here, which is a, a dangerous world too. There are good forces, there are bad forces. Unfortunately, your spirit has been made alive by God who created it. You've not been playing about with Ouija boards or crystal balls or anything like that. You've not been conducting magic ceremonies. That's the way into the wrong side of the heavenly realms. You have got to know Jesus. And through him, you are in heavenly realms, in, in, in your relationship with God. So that's what Ephesians is trying to explore. 
And uh, once you look at how the book is, is structured, just to, I've got to stop this introduction and get on into the book itself, the chapter itself tonight, but still, this is people. Like a lot of Paul's letters, it's divided into two bits. There's a bit of doctrine to start with in the first three chapters. And uh, this is all about the heavenlies and wh where our place is and what Christ has brought us into. And then, and then the chapter three, it swings around into some very practical stuff in life. And so having talked about the heavenlies for three chapters, then talks about this world, about what it's like to have a wife or a husband and how you ought to behave towards them, how children ought to behave towards their parents, all kinds of nitty gritty practical stuff like that, about how you ought to live out your life down here. And those two bits of Ephesians are again divided up as well. There are three words that are really important, it seems to me, in Ephesians. The first word is sit. We are seated in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And in the first three chapters, that's what's being talked about. Your position now in those heavenly realms. Down here, you could be sleeping, you could be walking around, you could be having your lunch or whatever, but you're seated in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus at the same time. Your battery's running low. Thank you very much for that. And um, um, uh, the n come on, what's going on here? This, this thing has decided not to cooperate. That's it. So chapters four and five, the key word is walk. How do you walk? How do you live in Christ in this world? How do you walk through this world without banging into things and, and steer the right course through it? And the final thing, at the end of chapter 6, is where it starts talking about the uh, spiritual armor that God's given us, the way in which we can hold our ground against the evil one. And the word there is stand. <laughs> so three chapters about being seated in heavenly realms, two chapters about walking the way you should be, and the last chapter, the last half of the last chapter anyway, talking about how you stand against all the forces that there are against you. And I could go into more detail here, but I think um, time is beating us, and uh, we'll leave that for the moment. But it gives you the basic shape of the letter. Now, you will find when you start to read it, it doesn't look as exciting as I've said it is. Why? Because it's written in quite complicated language. For instance, there are eight very long sentences. Now, that reading that Richard gave us earlier on is a little introduction, and then chapter th uh, verse 3 sorry, starts, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In my English version, from there to the end of verse 14, is six sentences because they've broken it up a bit. Guess what? In Greek, that is one sentence. I mean, if, if you started a letter, uh, reading a letter like that, uh, dear, uh, dear mum, hope you're well. Uh, yesterday I went to the supermarket and then I had my lunch. Well, not, not so much my lunch, more a cup of tea. And then I went, you know, if you have one long sentence, you know, for about half an hour, you think, what is going on here? So that's one of the weird things. There are eight of those long sentences on the way through Ephesians. There are also lots of words that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. It's as if Paul's trying to describe things that he's not describing anywhere else in the Bible. Also, you'll find that there are key words and phrases repeated again and again. Heavenly places is one of them. The word grace is another. The phrase in Christ is another. And why is he repeating all of those things? Well, this guy thinks he's got the answer. This is Ben Witherington III, who is one, that's a great American name, Ben Witherington III. And uh, he thinks he's got the answer to what is going on in Ephesians. He's written a book uh, called The Letters to Philemon, the Colossians and Ephesians, a socio-rhetorical commentary. And so he said, if you understand rhetoric, which is the ancient way that they used to teach you to speak, then you understand what's going on in Ephesians. Because in the ancient world, there were three kinds of rhetoric. If you had to speak in public, 
to make a speech at somebody's funeral or just say somebody was a good guy at a party or plead a law case or anything like that, then you had to be taught how to do it through the rules of rhetoric. And one type of rhetoric is judicial rhetoric. And that's based on what we think is fair. And that's the kind of rhetoric that will be used in a courtroom by a lawyer. It's the kind of rhetoric, too, that you find in the book of Romans. Uh, because Romans, the other big letter in the New Testament, is a letter which tries to unfold a very complicated argument. And judicial rhetoric is a large part of that. Then there's what's called deliberative rhetoric. It's getting worse. And that's based on what we think is logical. Now, this is the kind that will be used in, say, academic debates or something like that when two philosophers were arguing with one another, passing a law, uh, resolving an intellectual argument. You'd use it in Parliament and that sort of stuff. But there was a third kind of rhetoric which was used for speeches when you wanted to enthuse people and get them excited. And that was called, wait for it, epideictic rhetoric. <laughs> so if anybody asks you tonight, you're going to a lecture on epideictic rhetoric. Okay, that should impress them for five minutes anyway. But uh, so epideictic rhetoric was based on what we value. It was saying, these things are important, aren't they? You're excited about this, aren't you? This guy is a really bad character. We all think he's horrible, don't we? You could use it for that kind of thing. Talking about what we value or what we don't value, you'd use it to help people see what's most precious in life. Now, deliberative rhetoric and judicial rhetoric were really big in Rome. They were not so big <laughs> in Turkey. And in Ephesus, epideictic rhetoric was a local speciality. Paul had been trained all through. So normally in the New Testament, he doesn't do epideictic stuff. He writes stuff that's a bit more understandable. But for Ephesians and Colossians and one or two other letters that are based uh, in that kind of atmosphere where people appreciated this kind of writing, he used epideictic rhetoric. And uh, uh, Ben Witherington says this. In general, epideictic rhetoric is, is highly emotional in character, meant to inspire the audience to appreciate someone or something or someone, or at the other end of the spectrum, despise something or someone. It seeks to charm or to cast odium. Aristotle says that one of the first aims of such rhetoric is to excite admiration of someone or something. And why does he use it in Ephesians? Just because he wants us to see how intricate and wonderful and amazing and awe-inspiring it is to be in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are in the heavenlies. Amen. That is fantastic. How did we get there? Through the sheer love of God that gave Jesus to die for us. We did not deserve that. And it was planned way back before creation. We're chosen. That is pretty staggering. If you can talk about that without going, wow, you haven't really understood it. And so that's what's going on here. I'll leave a bit of Ben out. We talked about key words and phrases. Here are some of the ones you're going to see coming up in Ephesians. Grace in Christ. Riches, five times in the first half, because when he's doing the first half and talking about our place in, in the heavenlies, he wants to talk about just how rich this whole experience is. And seven times in the second half, you get the word walk. The heavenly comes up five times. And this is all what happens in epideictic. You get the same words and phrases coming up again and again because you just want to stress how wonderful the whole thing is. So, finally, after 20 minutes of my voice, we reach the question. What is in chapter one? All right, let's have a look at this passage that we're looking at tonight, just very, very briefly, and then we're done. First of all, there's the opening. Well, big deal, you knew about that already. And there are two verses at the start. But remember that when you read a New Testament letter, you must not skim over the start of it. You might just think, yeah, Paul, an apostle, Christ Jesus, Bible, okay, okay, enough. That's the boring bit. 
Actually, Paul chose the first words of his letters very, very carefully. He wanted them to say something from the word go. I mean, it's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever written a letter to a girl that you wanted to invite out or a boy who'd invited you out or something like that. But you're very, very careful how you write this letter. Um, dear Annie, that's too formal. Uh, my dear Annie. Oh, no, no, she's not mine yet. No, no. Uh, uh, dear Annie. Uh, no, Annie. Actually, maybe I should call her Anne. Dear Anne. Oh, that sounds like Anne says all the time from the doctor or something. You know, and you spend half an hour and you're still not past dear so-so. You know, because you've got to get those words just right. Well, Paul does open them just right, as we'll see in a moment. Then he talks uh, in those first 14 verses about how the, the whole scope of everything he wants to unpack in the letter. Verse 3, you'll notice, starts, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's off on his long, long sentence. And at the end of that sentence, he goes, <gasps> and then says, for this reason, <laughs> I wanted to write to you. <laughs> and so um, that, those verses from 3 to 14 tell you exactly why he's writing. And the first bit of it from verses 3 to 6 talks about what God has done. Then it talks about how he did it in verses 7 to 10. And finally, it talks about where that leaves us in verses 11 to 14. So with this five minutes, let's have a look at the opening, first of all. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. And there, for right away, you've got three terms that are really quite interesting. Paul says he's an apostle. An apostle means somebody who has been sent out by somebody else. Now, what's Paul saying in his very first few words? I'm not doing this job because I picked it. I didn't go down the job center and say, oh, I think you should be an apostle. <laughs> no, it wasn't a career I chose from a brochure. This is something that somebody else has sent me out to do. Not my business, his business. Then he used the word saints. What does that mean? Well, a saint is somebody who has been set apart from other people. That's what the Greek word means. Set apart to be different, to live a different life, to march to the beat of a different drummer. To look like Jesus instead of just everybody else around. And a saint can't do it by himself. We don't say, I'm going to be a saint. I'm definitely going to be a saint. This, I'm studying my A-level in saint theology. You can't do that. It doesn't happen. Somebody else has to make you a saint. And he talks about Jesus. But instead of saying Jesus Christ, which he normally does, and he does in just a couple of, of sentences afterwards, he talks about Christ Jesus. Because he's stressing the Christ bit. Christ, Jesus, the Christ. What does the Christ mean? It means the anointed one. Somebody who's been picked out by somebody else. And so what he's trying to stress in that introduction is, this is all done by God. I didn't choose to be an apostle. You didn't make yourself saints. Jesus didn't just decide to do what he was going to do. God the Father had a plan that goes back right through the ages into, to, well, before time itself existed. And right from the beginning of creation, everything was heading towards Jesus' cross and resurrection. It's that mind-blowing. It's that big. It's that staggering. And it was all done by God. And so you're chosen. If you're a Christian, you didn't just stumble into this. You didn't just wake up one morning and think, yeah, shall I be a Christian, Buddhist, a Jew, or any, 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 I'll be a Christian. Okay, fine. It wasn't like that. No, God chose you to come down the path you'd gone on, to stumble across Jesus to accept him into your life and be the person you are. It's no accident, it's no coincidence, it's something that he planned for you. So that's the opening. Then he goes on to verses 3 and 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who has blessed us in the heavenly places. So he's talking about the heavenlies already. And if you read those verses, you'll see that he talks about uh, stages that had to happen before you were in heavenly places. First of all, he says you were chosen in him before the creation of the world, before you existed, before your dad existed. Before your great, 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 great grandparents existed. Before your great, great, however far you want to go, existed. That was already planned. And you were chosen in him. You might think, hang on a minute. There is something funny going on here because as far as I can remember, I chose to be a Christian. And people persuaded me to do that. They said, look, you want to be a Christian. It's like, okay, fair enough. So I chose. How are you saying I chose? Well, that's a difficult thing to work out. But the Bible says both are, are true. Your choice really matters, and you have to decide. But on the other hand, when you do choose, you find that God chose you a long way back. Why was that? Well, God knew what was in you. That's one, one part of the explanation. And so you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He knew a long way ahead how you were going to choose. Oops, I think the thing has just switched itself off, which is not a good idea. It means that I need to create some power. Sorry about that. make it, but I'm talking too much. Let's just see what we can do here. And um, so it's a bit like this. One, one old preacher once put it like this. Suppose you've invited somebody to come to your house for tea. Thank you. And uh, you meet a friend in the street and say, I hear you've got so-and-so come to your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a great dinner planned for them. It'll be fantastic. Uh, I've got this massive, massive tomahawk steak. And your friend says, oh dear, you don't know about this then. What's that? Uh, he became a vegetarian last week. <laughs> ah. So you head back to Sainsbury's or wherever, and you get a vegetarian dish. That's okay. Yeah, that's just thinking about it now. It'll be, it'll be up back here in a minute. And so when the, 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 the person comes, comes to the house uh, for the meal, you've got it already. You say, okay, great. What's for tea tonight? And you say, well, you have a choice. You can either have a tomahawk steak or you can have this vegetable nut cutlet thing. And you know exactly, before he gets there, what he's going to choose. Because you know what's in him. <laughs> but so he's chosen. You haven't said to him, you will have this vegetarian dish or nothing. You've given him a choice. You can have steak if you like. Yeah, no, I don't want steak. Thank you very much. And he goes for the thing that you knew was in him all along. Well, that's not a brilliant explanation, but it's one kind of explanation. How God can choose and yet we can choose. And the important thing for Paul at this point is that God has chosen you. He's chosen you um, uh, before the foundation of the world. Once I can get this thing back in operation, I'll just let this, this, this go for a minute. The second thing he says, though, is you've been cho he chose us in, the, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children. In other words, he not just only chosen, he said, we'll have that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. He also adopted you into his family. Now, when we think of adoption, we tend to think of a family who've got no kids going out and finding a little cuddly baby and bringing it in as their own. That was not the way that adoption worked in the Roman world. Nobody wanted babies. In fact, quite the opposite. What used to happen was that when a childless couple were on the point of dying, they would often choose somebody who was completely unrelated to them. But somebody who was an, a, a, you know, 
a young man who could carry on the family name. And they would say, you take our name and we will leave you all our money and our house and everything else. Yep, you can have the dog and the cat as well. And then you will be like our son. And that was how adoption happened. Not with somebody who's a baby, but with somebody who was an adult. And he got all the responsibilities and all of the privileges of the family. And here we go. We could be up there in a moment, I hope. No, we're not. All right, we'll start it again and see what happens. Uh, let's just see what we can do here. Okay. Uh, no signal. Ah, sorry. So we're still... Okay. Seems to be recognized at this end, but not... Uh, well, try it again. Just one second. That looks more like it. Okay. Yes. All of your life is now going to flash before you. I'm sorry. This is what seemed for the last half hour. Oh, no. Right. Very quickly. Come on, Alan. Oh, nearly done. Oh, dear me. Did we really do all that? Oh, heavens. Right. There we go. And, uh, <laughs> yes. We're nearly there. Honestly, honestly, honestly. There we go. An apostle against the Christ, all done by God, and then we'll win the what God has done section. In the heavens. So, we've been chosen, and also we've been adopted as children. You've got all the rights of a member of God's family. You bear his image. When other people look at you, you'd see the family likeness. It's an amazing privilege. So, he talks about that, and he's going to talk more about it in uh, Ephesians later on. And he says, this means two things. First of all, God willed it, and he wanted it. And you'll see um, at the, the, the end of that, that section, three to six, that he talks about the, the fact that this is according to God's will and God's good pleasure. It's something God really wanted to happen. He didn't do it just to get you out of the mess. He did it because he loved you and he wanted you to come as close to him as you possibly could. And he did it so that his glory would be praised. That's what he wants. He wants us to praise him to recognize just how much there is there in him. It's not because he just likes like praise. Oh, come on, pay me some more compliments. Tell me some other nice things. It's not that way. It's because we appreciate what's there in him and, and we just reflect that back to him. Yeah. And his love makes us praise him. We'll say a lot more about that, but we need to talk about these other two bits and then finish how he did it. There are three things, three big words in this section. You see the word redemption, which means he brought us back. He brought us out of the power of evil and gave us a whole new start here. Second, you'll see the word forgiveness. He forgave us for our sins. Everything we've done in the past is completely wiped out. Even your future sins are covered by Jesus' death on the cross. He paid the price for everything wrong that you will ever done, so you're forgiven. And the third word is wisdom and understanding. He gave us the ability to understand this whole thing. He revealed his whole plan to us. Now, with redemption, we're talking about a price that had to be paid. Somebody had to pay the price of our rebellion, and Jesus did that when he died on the cross. With forgiveness, we're talking about peace that had to be settled until we were forgiven by God, until that friendship was restored between him and us, we were going nowhere. But with wisdom and understanding, we're talking about a privilege that didn't have to be granted. In other words, God could have done all of this and just left us completely in the dark about what he was doing. But he's helped us understand his will, understand his purpose, look into the mystery of how he did it and think, wow, that's how much he loves me. 
And that's pretty staggering when you get down to it. So that we could say a lot more about that. But finally, let's just talk about where that leaves us. And he talks about Jews. He talks about Gentiles in verses 11 to 14. And he says, if you're Jewish, this is the way it happened for you. First of all, you're predestined. God chose you way back before the foundation of the world. And then you were chosen. And then you started hoping in Christ. You became a Christian. You began to realize that this is something that applies to you. Then you lived to the praise of his glory. And Paul says, those of us who are Jews, who are first to discover Jesus, that is the path that we went down. And that's what he describes in verses 11 and 12 there. Then he turns to those of uh, his audience, and it's most of the people in Ephesus, who weren't Jewish at all, who were Gentiles, non-Jews. He says, what happened to you? Well, first of all, you heard and believed. You heard the message, you accepted it. You thought, it's not just for Jews. This is for everybody on the planet, so I can have some of the stuff. As a result of that, he says, the next thing that happened was that you were marked with a seal. You were marked as different from other people. What's the seal that God places on your life? Paul says it's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life and strengthens you and gives you a, a new life and starts putting up your act and making you different and giving you an ability to withstand evil and wrong in a way that you never were before and a new love for other people, a new compassion for the world you live in, a new relationship to everybody. That is the seal that means you're, you belong to the Lord Jesus. And he says the Holy Spirit is also the down payment, the guarantee of what's to come. And what that means is, if you've got the Holy Spirit in your life, that is a down payment on everything that God is going to do to you one of these days. You want to know what heaven is like? Well, ask yourself what the Holy Spirit has done in your life so far. Because if you know any joy from the Holy Spirit, if you know any closeness to God from the Holy Spirit, if you know any power from the Holy Spirit, that is just a foretaste, a down payment on the whole thing that God's going to give you one of these days. And he says, you've got that down payment as well, even though you're not a Jew. And he says, the end result is the same. You live to the praise of his glory. You live in such a way that out of your life, where you are, at school, at work, wherever you are, something will shine out of your life that other people will see, will glimpse from time to time, and they'll say, I want to be like that. I want to have a bit of that. I don't know what he's on, but it's good, and I like it. And so you live in a way that his glory is going to shine out of you, and other people are going to praise God to result. Let's, as we finish, just skip forward to the end of chapter 3, end of that heavenly section I was talking about, and this is how it finishes. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church, that's us, and in Christ Jesus, that's how God does it, throughout all generations, ever and ever. Amen. Let's just pray for a